Did you hear the the gentleman that starts? Mm. That sounds very much like that show where it's like, do you know where your kids are? Or like, <laughs> do you know your, where your gems are? Where <laughs> your gems are? I can't. What's the name of that show? Unsolved mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. <laughs> yes. Weirdly sounds excited like that about host. that. <laughs> I hate when they get solved, but I'm so excited when they're unsolved. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Steph? I have my second keyboard. And your third, frankly. Oh yeah, that's true. It is my third. Although technically one of them is going back. So that's a fun uh, note to bring up. So Mechanical Keyboards is a company that I ordered the keyboard that's by Leopold and it has the Toper silent switches. And that one's very nice, but they did ship me the wrong color for the one that I'd ordered. There's not many color options, but there's two. So they sent me the one that's all black. So I reached out to them for support and making sure I could get the correct one. And they were really great and responsive. And they sent me the new one before I've sent back the other one, which is really nice of them. Very trusting. It is very trusting of them. And they also sent me a return label so I can send the other one. But that was really nice because then I got to compare the two colors before I actually made the final decision of which one to send back. But the color one's going to win. It's a gray-blue color, so it's a has a little bit of pizzazz to it. Still very muted compared to other things that you were considering. but It's not the, what was the one? Uh, frozen Llama. It's not Frozen Llama. Frozen Llama? That is a new phrase that I had not heard yet, but I actually was making a joke and I was referencing the other other keyboard that's on your desk right now because there's a fourth apparently that you have in your collection temporarily. So now that I've gone down this road, folks are just leaving keyboards on my desk, which is really fun. Uh, Anyone in our ThoughtBot office that has a mechanical keyboard is pretty aware that I'm into them now. So they've been kindly stopping by my desk and just dropping them off. So I'll show up like I did this morning. And Will had brought in one of his keyboards from home. So then I I get to play with that one. And that one has blue switches, which is one that I hadn't played with yet. Blue being Cherry MX Blue, not the color blue, right? Or both? Right. Yeah. No, they're not the color blue. I think they're Cherry MX switches, although I didn't actually clarify. He just mentioned that they're blue switches. So they're the more clickety, loud switches. Sorry. As double checking, Frozen Llama is the name of it. Frozen Llama is what kicked off this whole thing. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but going back, I I have my other keyboard because uh, I'd originally just planned on having those two, and it's the Keychron K2. It's also introduced to me by some of the Thoughtbotters here in the office, and it's a really nice keyboard. It is certainly very different than the Leopold Toper switches. This one is Gateron Brown switches, so still a bit more noisy. They have a nice tactile feel to them. And it's a really nice price point because they're around $70, while the Leopold is more in like the $250 range. So it's a it's a great keyboard. If anyone who is also going down this adventure like I just did, I think it's a really nice starting point. I'm not ready to scale up to three or four on their first outing. Uh, I'm definitely considering the Keychron. I want to borrow that from you someday to give it a try. I also need to figure out which switches because I'm trying to find slightly quieter ones for my home office so that my wife will continue to be my friend. But uh, That's why I have the, the Toper Silent yeah. for the same reason. But I don't want to pay the... It's, it's a lot of overhead for truly silent. So I'm, I feel like there's a middle option somewhere in there, and I'm seeking that middle option. I'd be excited for you to find that, because I, I didn't go down looking for like the clears, and I think we learned today there's also gold and some other colors that I... Or not there's colors, but switches yeah. that I wasn't familiar with. 
So I'd be excited. I feel like I've done my due diligence. I think I'll hand this one off to you yep. and you can let me know how it turns out. I'm contemplating buying the little, there's a test thing with nine keys of the like nine different cherry varieties. So I might buy that and then that'll allow me to just repeatedly click one key and see how it sounds. But uh, yeah. That'd well, be a nice ad for the office. Yeah. I feel like folks. we should have it mm-hmm. now that you've gotten us all on this adventure. Frankly, there were a bunch beforehand, but now I feel like you've really dialed it up to 11 for the whole office. We could start our own little mechanical keyboard shop. If you want to test a mechanical keyboard, we have several options in the office, <laughs> which was nice because one of my friends on Twitter uh, reached out to me, mentioned the same thing over at EasyCater. They also have a number of mechanical keyboards. So they'd invited me over one day when they hang out after work if I just wanted to try some of them out. So Just come over for a beer and take a mechanical keyboard out for a ride. Take it out for a spin. <laughs> test drive. You know, you've got you to gotta see if it feels right. Which is interesting because it is an expensive endeavor or a new hobby to go into, but we don't have a brick and mortar store, at least not that I'm aware of, where I can go and test these out. So it is hard. It's like if you're buying a car, although that's a much bigger comparison, but we'll go with it. If you're buying a car, you want to test drive it before you own it. And it's with the keyboards, you really just have to order a couple of them, play with them and know you're going to send some of them back. I'm now imagining ThoughtBot moving into the retail space, opening a mechanical keyboard test drive shop. I don't know. We could have a coffee shop on the side. This is a whole thing. We can do it. Ralph's keyboards. Perfect. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I have my two keyboards. I'm very happy. I don't plan on acquiring any more anytime soon. That's what they all say. That's true. We'll, we'll continue with this check any tweak to see where I land. I don't know. I feel like we might have settled and we'll see. Maybe in a month when you buy your third, then we'll have a new point of conversation. But I feel like now this has been... We've been following your progress. You now have the two of them. I'm going to only steal one of them. And uh, yeah, it's good. Borrow. Borrow. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I just got the leftover that was there already. So everybody wins. But that's uh, what's new, at least in Toyland for me. Uh, What's new with you? And the continuing theme of Toyland, uh, I finally convinced myself to buy an Apple Watch this week. I'd wanted a watch for a while, particularly, and this is a weird reason, but uh, I find myself in a number of one-on-ones these days, and in some cases I have them back-to-back or there's something else that's happening, and so I need to keep an eye on time, and I didn't have a watch at all, so I would either have to take out my phone or I, I just felt very impolite in the meeting having to do this, like, oh, hold on, let me take out my phone, which seems... Like I'm, I don't know, checking a message or something like that, which is definitely not the vibe I want to give during a one-on-one. But so that's how I convinced myself to buy an Apple Watch. Totally reasonable, I think. You did the same Um, thing I did with keyboards. You went from (laughs) zero to the more fancy version. (laughs) I have a need for a simple timepiece. So I'm going to buy a computer that straps to my wrist. Totally straightforward, very linear thought progression there. But I'm like a day and a half into it, and I am—I uh, quite enjoy this little device. Uh, what do you like? I'm still in the camp where I'm very intrigued that people enjoy those. Having not worn one myself, I'm curious what you like about it. Well, so I've taken it for a run, uh, which was interesting because it gives heart rate data, which is a really nice way to measure the intensity of a run and you know how you're keeping at a consistent intensity throughout rather than pace is one thing, but if you're like running the same speed up a hill, then it doesn't quite mean the same thing. And so the heart rate data is actually really interesting. General heart tracking stuff is actually really interesting to me. Um, The Apple Watch is a medical device, sort of intriguing. I opted into uh, providing my data in an anonymous way for a clinical arrhythmia heart tracking sort of study. So basically my data is now part of a very large data set that they're able to crunch and try and introduce, I assume, more advanced algorithms for early detection of heart irregularities. It's like, cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, There's also some data that I'm getting back directly about my resting heart rate, uh, heart rate variability, other fun things like that. So 
Those are all really intriguing. It works as a, a watch, so I can tell the time, which is both pointedly useful in the meeting situation, but I also really like, like I was moving around, I actually moved my desk today because I'm switching over projects and I had a meeting that I had to get to a little later on. And so as I'm moving around, I didn't want to take out my phone, which is the normal way that I tell time, but I, I could just look at my wrist. There's a, a tone of surprise to my voice and a look of surprise on my face. Like, what? did everybody know about this? This is a great invention. <laughs> so yeah, I'm a little late to the party. <laughs> just to the watch in general party. <laughs> That's funny. I've had watches historically. I just haven't had one for years. Yeah. Um, I really like all of that. But I also, I met up with some friends after work yesterday and I was getting other text messages while I was out. I sound like I'm very popular in this situation. That is not accurate, but whatever. We'll set that aside. Other text messages were coming in, and it was nice to just be able to quickly glance at my wrist and determine that I didn't need to reply. This wasn't some urgent thing from a family member or anything like that. And it's interesting because I've always been sort of opposed to notifications in general. They'll distract me. They'll take me out of focus. But in this case... If I had felt the like vibration of my phone implying that I had a message, I would probably take my phone out because my brain's going to be like, well, what was it? Was it important? Do I need to know about that? Does it matter? And so then the act of taking my phone out, looking down at it, probably interacting with that is much more disruptive, especially in a social situation like that. Whereas I was able to very easily dismiss it and say like, oh, I'll come back to that later, but don't need to do anything now. So it weirdly kept me more engaged and present in the situation that I was in. I had a friend who had described that scenario, and I was like, I don't know that I believe it, but interesting, and I very much experienced that last night. So I was like, all right, cool. These are some nice features. Yeah, I do understand that part. Cause so I have, I also have a watch that has some of the technology built into it where it'll show me messages, but it's not the Apple Watch. It's a Withings watch, and it shows me notifications of if someone sends me a message or texts me or lets me know if someone's calling me. And for that reason, I also like mine, too, just because I want to know if it's urgent, if it's someone I need to get back to, or if it's okay if I wait for a bit. So I understand that part. That That is a really nice piece of the functionality. Oh, cool. Well, you'll have to keep me posted on, on how it goes, and if you decide that it was worth the upgrade. Mm, the upgrade from the nothing? Yeah. <laughs> the initial entry point into the market of watches with a computer on my wrist. But yeah, that's my watch story. I'll, uh, I'll certainly follow up in future weeks if I find anything else novel, but I don't know. I'm happy with that so far. So, But I think we have a listener follow-up. We do. We have someone that followed up with us on Twitter regarding a conversation that we were having in a previous episode where we were talking about email verification and whether the link that a user receives when they're verifying that they own that email address, if the full URL should be case sensitive, case insensitive, how it should be treated. And I can't remember exactly where you and I landed in that discussion, but this person kindly reached out and pointed us to the RFC for the treatment of URLs and confirmed that everything except the scheme and domain is case sensitive. So anything that's later on in that past the scheme and domain can be case sensitive and it matters whether you put in capital or, or lowercase letters, which makes sense. I think that was what I understood it to be, but I'm also so used to when I'm programming that I don't treat my URLs in that way. I try to make everything lowercase, but that's still, I suppose, case sensitive. I'm just imagining the world is typing everything. You're just purposefully downcasing everything. You're right. I'm yeah. just purposely downcasing everything. But I do remember running into that when teaching a class at the Roxbury Innovation Center when we had used Bitly to create a short link to help advertise the class and for people to be able to find the content and sign up for the class. When it was initially created, uh, the individual had put in capitalized letters. Once I saw that, I reached out to them and let them know that that is going to be case sensitive and it might actually cause people to have trouble typing it in if they downcase everything. So we made a second link that was then all downcased. So that way, either way that mm. a user 
user input that URL that they would get to the correct page. Does Bitly definitely do case-sensitive paths? I'm pretty confident they do. Okay. I haven't used them in the last 24 hours, so I'm going to give myself some wiggle room. <laughs> I'm as confident <laughs> but, as I can be with anything I haven't talked about in the last 24 hours, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that it is case-sensitive. So I think when we were talking about this, I had made the guess that URLs and email addresses are case-insensitive entirely. And the clarification is that definitively the domain and the scheme are case insensitive. Mm-hmm. You can have the uppercase or the lowercase. You can't spoof Amazon.com with a capital A. Right. And similarly, that applies to email addresses. So anything after the at sign, that is a domain, and therefore it's treated in the same way. But the local part of the email address, so the first bit, your username essentially, it's up to the email provider to determine how to interpret that. And similarly, it's up to us as application developers to determine how to treat the path segment and anything after the domain and the URL. So equally in both cases, it's like the important part, the shared infrastructure of the internet, case insensitive. The rest of it, I don't know, have fun. Although with email addresses, apparently no email provider treats it case sensitively. They all treat it case insensitively, which is a good default, I think. But they chose to do that. That's not a requirement. Definitely. Although I I feel like I've run into applications where they're not always down casing emails when a user is creating an account. And I say applications, plural, but I really think it was just one that I, I ran into where they were accepting an email address from a user and not down casing it in the database. So then if you typed in your email address with a different format or different casing, it wouldn't find you. And that's always concerning because that's just something you always do is that you downcase and normalize the emails for that purpose. So I learned a thing recently. Our colleague Ebes, we were discussing actually emails in specific because we were running into this on the application that we were working on. And apparently Postgres has a case insensitive text format. So when you're doing comparisons at the Postgres level, if you use that as the field type, then the comparisons will always be case insensitive but the value will actually be stored in whatever casing you provide it. So if someone wants to type their email address with varying up cap, down cap, you know, whatever they want to do, you will store that and be able to show that to them in the future. But if you're doing any comparisons at the Postgres level, so sort of pushed all the way down, you're safe. So you don't have to remember to do it case insensitively and you don't have to destructively alter data. That's a that's a heavy phrase, but that's how I feel about it. <laughs> you don't have to change the data in order to make this work. Postgres has a way to be like, yeah, we got you. We can just do that whenever we need to do a comparison. That's awesome. And that just happens automatically when you're looking for that particular string. You don't have to send like an extra command to say that this should be case insensitive. I believe, and I've, I only know of this anecdotally, so we'll send a link and do all that good stuff. But um, I believe it's the nature of the field. So you're saying this column within a table is defined to be a case-insensitive text field as opposed to a text field. So it's a different column type. And that instructs Postgres to do the correct thing all the time. But it only does the correct thing at comparison as opposed to it stores it the same way. It will return it to you the same way. So it's just kind of like designed for this case. Oh, that's so good to know. Because I think it was a while back when I had run into applications. I don't know how long that's been available in Postgres. I saw that as a concern. I now wonder if it indeed was fine because they were using that column where it's case insensitive, but they were still storing it with the case entered by the user. So yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Postgres. That just made that easier. Thanks, Postgres. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Honey Badger. HoneyBadger is a zero instrumentation, 360-degree coverage of errors, outages, and service degradations for your web apps. 
If you have a web app, you need it. Honey Badgers work on all of your favorite languages and frameworks, including Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, specifically React and Vue, Laravel, Elixir, and Phoenix. Honey Badger is different from other error trackers. They go beyond errors to give you full confidence in the health of your production systems. Their integrated exception, uptime, and cron slash service monitoring will save your bacon. Your next outage will be easier to diagnose and fix, and your customers will be happier. You'll spend more time on software development and less time monitoring. Yeah, additionally, error monitoring is just one of those core features. Like We have it built into suspenders because it's something that we want to have there from day one. Uh, it's really annoying to have to add that down the road and start thinking about what are the errors. And it's very easy if you add it later in a project's life to suddenly have a wall of errors. But if you have it there from the beginning, then at least you have a chance of staying in front of the errors and not letting that build up. So yeah, Honey Badger is a default in that way. I've also noticed that if we already have a default built-in way to track errors, then as we're building out new features, that's something that we'll include in part of that feature work is considering how is it going to be tracked by an error? Do we need to add a different alert for this type of feature and be notified versus if we didn't have that from the beginning, we might push that off and be like, well, we don't have that yet, so let's just focus on the feature work versus if we start out, as you mentioned, with having that platform there, then it makes it that much easier to then fold in those use cases while doing the feature work. So to get your app up and running on Honey Badger, head over to their website, honeybadger.io, and let them know you heard about Honey Badger from the bike shed during sign-up. And thanks to Honey Badger for sponsoring today's episode. So changing topics just a little bit, I think I saw some exciting news from you about a blog post. Yes, I, uh, I wrote a blog post, which is a weirdly uncommon thing for me uh, in the six and a half years that I've been at ThoughtBot. I've actually written a handful of blog posts, but almost all of them were announcements for other things. So announcements for new course coming out on Upcase or a change to the podcast or something like that. But I haven't written many like, I'm a developer, I'm telling a story about code. And I find that interesting. Like, I like the topic of the blog post. I think it was a fun post. Folks can read it. It's about active record and Rails and reusing query logic and some other fun things. But mostly I'm intrigued with how long it's been since I've written just a blog post and what it is that prevents me from doing that. Because I ramble enough that I must have something to say, and yet I don't write it down on the blog. Like Somehow that is a thing that I find difficult to do. Yeah, you've certainly been a big contributor to a lot of the content that ThoughtBot has between Bike Shed, Giant Robots podcast, and then also all the content that you've done with Upcase. So you certainly produce a lot of contributions and content to the world. So it is interesting that the blog post in particular is one that maybe you feel concerned that you haven't contributed enough to that area, or you're just sort of intrigued about why you choose to not share your opinions as much in that forum. Yeah, I think it's mostly I'm intrigued by it, and I'm sort of looking at it. And the key thing that I can take away is there are no deadlines for a blog post. I'll just write it. And whenever I get done, then I'm done. But like done in a thing without a deadline, I can just keep iterating, I can keep tweaking, and as a result, I end up shipping nothing for many years. Whereas like the podcast, we show up each week and we record, and that's true for basically all of the other pieces of content that I've produced. So it's just interesting to me, especially there's a blog post that I worked tangentially with Matt Sumner on about deadlines, and it was talking about many developers, I think, bemoan deadlines, especially when they come out of nowhere and they're surprises. But they can actually be really powerful and really useful in terms of constraining and saying like, no, we got to ship something by the end of the month. And it's okay to change what that something is or to alter other factors, but deadlines can be super useful. And this is, for me, a, a different form of seeing that play out. Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. I also know that anytime I do something that feels in that creative space, whether it's sharing content, if it's issuing a PR, if it's being here on the podcast, once I'm done with that creative piece, 
that negative inner critic will creep up and start to tell me things about maybe you should have done this differently or I didn't do this as well. And with certain creative mediums, I can't as easily go back and change anything. I can take some of those ideas or concerns and apply them to next time. But like for this podcast, I mean, we could certainly come back and re-record it, but I would not want to do that because then that involves someone else that also has to give up their time to help me address something that I'm concerned about, which I know you would do and I appreciate. But with a blog post, if I have that inner critic pop up before I hit publish on it, I can constantly go back and tweak it. So... I appreciate that idea of like deadlines help you get past that to at least just get it out into the world. But then I also understand how that would hold you back because like you said, you can constantly go back and change it and then you never really have to hit that publish button. It's interesting though, as you say that with the podcast, we're, I would say much less likely to come back and re-record any segment. We sort of produce them, put them out there and then that's that, they're they're done. But the blog post, there's actually nothing stopping me from going back and editing it. So they're like, the sequence of editing and re-editing, I can actually just keep doing that if I want. And I should try and put that story into my head of like, doesn't need to be perfect, needs to be, I need the MVP of this blog post. And then what's nice is when you put stuff out on the internet, people will tell you if you're wrong. <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic feature of the internet is that you get a bunch of eyes on something and they'll be like, oh, you didn't know about this thing. And in my experience, I have experienced that in a positive way. I know it can take the negative form as well, but like the feedback that we got about the recent episode and the URL thing, that was really nice that someone pointed us to the specifics and now we know. We're going to forget because that's not the sort of detail you keep in your head, but we know right now. I'll be confident for the next 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> And then it'll start to slip. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you may remain confident. You just won't actually know the answer for the next seven days. But that's, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was a fun blog post. I'm glad to have written it. I would like to write more. We'll see if that happens. But uh, yeah, I will say, though, I absolutely love the process of writing blog posts at ThoughtBot because we have such a supportive, collaborative, like it's not me writing a blog post and then publishing it off on my own. Uh, Joel Kenville manages the blog overall. And so he's editing or at least providing feedback on nearly every piece. But then... Many of the other folks here at the office gave it a pass and gave me that much more confidence in actually merging it and putting it out there into the world because I know I've gotten all these other eyes and opinions on it. Yeah, that certainly, for me, that would help reduce that inner critic where like, I still have to be brave enough if I were new to ThoughtBot and I'm feeling nervous about sharing this content with my colleagues, but then I get eyes from everyone, so then I feel more confident once they've all looked at it, then I feel like there's a little more co-ownership, even though it may have my name on it. I know they've reviewed it and they approve it and find it helpful, so then that gives me more courage to go forward and, and send it out to the world. I am curious, so you've been doing podcasting for how, how long now? On the bike shed, it's been a little over a year. I think it was August of last year that I took over the hosting seat. And then there was a six-month period, i say it was like 2016, 2015, something like that, where I was on Giant Robots co-hosting with Ben. Okay. I was curious because, so you've had time to practice and hone the skill of coming in, sharing knowledge, and then moving on to the next thing. And I wonder if you applied a similar deadline to writing, where if you just wrote maybe like a paragraph each week, or if you wrote something short, have that MVP style, if it became a lot easier to share in that form, if that's something that then you would reach for more often. Because I feel like our creative space needs to be sort of easy. Like we don't want to have to go for something that's going to feel overly challenging because then the content itself may be challenging. So then maybe practice would also change the outcome as to how many blog posts you wrote. There's a book that I read at one point that is very much relevant to this, which is On Writing, I want to say is the name of it. It's by Stephen King. Uh, And so it's him talking about his practice. And so the first half is more like general advice. And then the second half is a little bit more of a memoir or I might have those reversed. But 
the recommendations portion was fantastic. And for such a prolific author, you would assume he's just the sort of person that he's a wellspring of creativity. He's like, no, I sit down and I write. Even when I don't want to write, I just do the thing. And I haven't actually read it, but I've heard very similar stuff about the war of art. Mm. Um, talking about there's a phrase from it called the resistance. How is the resistance showing up today? I think is the phrase from it. But the idea of like, what what's the story? What's the voice in your head? What's the thing that's preventing you from doing the work? So I'm intrigued by all that stuff. And I feel like there's definitely room for some of that. Or maybe I don't need to write that many blog posts. There's also that option. That's <laughs> but, also true. <laughs> but I found it enjoyable. So in that sense of like, why is there this distinction between what I want to do and then what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. It's always interesting. Yeah, blog posts are something that we certainly celebrate here. But yeah, I agree with the idea that if you have your mediums and you're happy with them, I don't think there's any any reason that you have to write blog posts, only if you want to. I will say, though, for us, the blog has been one of the most effective tools in getting the ThoughtBot name out there and building sort of an identity and helping with hiring. And all. Like, there are incredible benefits that we've seen from the blog. So I want to... I want to make sure I'm part of that as part of the thing. But that, I think, holds true for anyone. Like on an individual's personal blog, it's a way to demonstrate expertise and to show a history of of doing something. And so it is a, a skill that I think is valuable and worth honing for most folks. I tend to think more highly of engineering teams or companies that I see that have a blog hmm. just because – To me, it's two things. One, they're sharing with the world the things that they're learning. And then two, they're giving people the time to write. So anytime I see a company that is facilitating where they have a blog and they're letting people actively contribute to it on a pretty frequent basis, that's always a a double thumbs up for me where I think they probably have a pretty good team or pretty good culture that I would enjoy. Uh, circling back for just real quick to the some of the content in your blog post when I was reading it, one of the things that you did, maybe it's not the content specifically, but it was the way that you approached the concept that you were looking to share with the readers. And in the first step, you gave a code snippet so folks could follow along. But then right below that, you went on to describe what was happening in that code block with words. And I thought that was lovely. I really appreciated the fact that you had two different ways for readers to identify what was happening and then find it relatable. So I thought that was a really nice addition to the blog post that I think a lot of people at ThoughtBot do a a good job with in their blog post. But I just wanted to call that out specifically because that was what you wrote about was great, but that was actually my favorite part that you did. Oh, thank you. I I don't know. I didn't think much of that at the time, but that is sort of how I think about code is almost like prose and trying to get it as close to that as possible. And so sort of just naturally seemed like a good way to describe to the reader the thing that I was doing, but interesting that that stood out to you. I find the fact that that comes naturally to you very interesting because I see that in someone that has probably done a fair amount of teaching in their life that they will have a subject and they will share it in one form, but then also turn around and share it in another form. And there's a class that I've been looking at thinking about taking that is specifically about like adult education and how we learn. And the teacher shares that a lot of times that when they're teaching content, that they will share it in five or six different ways. And then they'll also remind their students to say, I'm going to talk about this a couple times in different ways with anecdotes. And I understand at some point if it feels boring to you because the first version might resonate with you. But please keep in mind that someone next to you, it may resonate with them by the time we're on the third example or the third approach that I'm trying. And I just really value that idea that not everybody learns the same way. And so we try to give content in one or two ways to help each person. So changing course just a little bit, uh, we have a question from a listener. Mm. This question comes from Johnny B. Good via Twitter. Johnny wrote in, do you have experience with monorepos? If so, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as it sounds quite appealing to me, except for the coupling. Most of the reasons in an article called Monorepos, Please Don't by Matt Klein don't seem to apply to small and medium-sized teams. 
I think we initially responded to Johnny, but we haven't really dived into this topic. So mm. this is a, a fun one to talk about together. So I've only worked with one company that had a mono repo. And so specifically what that means is all of their code lived within one repository. So instead of having multiple Git repos, one per project or deployable or however you want to think about it, everything, uh, all of the little like shared libraries and vendor code and each different deployed application, iOS, Android, everything was all in one big repository where there's like top level directories that structure things. And then you're working in essentially subdirectories within that one big repo. So I've had that experience working at a client. There were some benefits that we saw around being able to make atomic commits and, say, up the version of something across all of the different projects. So everybody's using, say, React across the organization. We want to make sure everyone's on the same version of React, which is a really interesting constraint and not something that I've seen at other organizations. Uh, and so they were able to do that. They were able to make bug fixes to internal libraries and have that go out uniformly across all the other projects. They had a test and build infrastructure that you were able to declare your dependencies sort of across this folder structure within the monorepo, such that you knew if you were breaking anyone else's thing. So there were some really nice things that came out of it. Overall, I found it cumbersome. I didn't feel like it was giving the benefits over the cost. So in that sense, within an organization where you're like application code, my one experience with that was not great. I'm actually more intrigued by, I see a lot of open source projects moving to monorepos. So like Apollo, as an example, is a front end library for interacting with GraphQL, but they have the core Apollo client library, and then they have bindings for React and Vue and all these other things. And all of them are in a shared repository for essentially that organization. That starts to become more interesting to me. It's a little more contained of a thing. It's not one monorepo to rule them all, but it is, I don't know, a little more scoped. And that seems interesting, but overall... I really like having separate Git repositories and being able to keep things kind of separate and use actual package managers and dependency management for you know cross-dependency management. Yeah, I haven't had the opportunity to work in a space where I've worked with a monorepo, where I've had a bunch of different applications inside of one repository. It is an intriguing choice to me. On one hand, some of the things you said sound nice, where if you have a security concern and you want to apply it across all of your products, you can do that at once, or at least have it in one place and maybe one team can work on it and address it for all the products versus having each product team have to then go through and make the updates do you happen to know why the organization that you're working with that they chose to use a monorepo? Is it specifically because it helps with deployments? Do they find that teams have better communication? I'm really curious what deployment communication looks like. Do Sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions mm. here, so feel free to respond to any of them. <laughs> and then one of the other questions is regarding how often do they ship? Are they allowed to deploy every day? Do they have to wait till everyone is ready to ship something one time a week? Or how does that work? My sense, and I don't actually know for certain, but my sense was this was about centralizing control for that organization. So particularly, they did not allow any arbitrary code to be executed within the system. So you couldn't just NPM install something or install a gem. You had to use vendored versions of the code. And so they were locking down the versions for security and maintenance reasons such that you're not using a gem, you are referencing a directory sort of up the tree and then back down the tree into the vendor that's adjacent to you. And now everyone's using the same version of, say, like Kaminari for pagination. Every different app, all the same, everybody's on the same version of Ruby, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it allowed for more central management of security and you know what packages we're using. So that's my sense of the why. In terms of deployment and things, the team that I was on, we were able to operate mostly independently. It was actually a surprise every once in a while. We would come in and there'd be 
sort of a pull request open that touched our part of the code. Someone had come in and said, oh, we maintain this library that you're using. We have now upgraded your usage of it to be in compliance. And we fixed the test that broke as a result of that, which was interesting to see that sort of shared ownership thing going on. Yeah, that part's nice. I like that very much that everyone feels more like one team mm-hmm. where you're you're very much welcome to hop into each other's projects and help out. Mostly. Okay. Not mostly. 100%. <laughs> I would say it felt like it had more headaches than solutions. And also it made like using GitHub becomes, it doesn't really make sense anymore because GitHub is not designed well around this. What you, kind of challenges do you run into with GitHub? Just in terms of wh- what do I own? What am I working on? You're actually working a couple steps down inside a Git repository. You're not working at the root. And so mm-hmm. there are weird assumptions, not weird, they're, I think, relatively straightforward assumptions that often we expect to be working from the root of a Git repository, but we weren't. And so there are tools that just didn't work, and there are workflows that just didn't work, and diffing and things like that. And what if you're moving some files, and now this directory structure suddenly becomes a really enforced thing And it just had all of these externalities that, to me, didn't feel worth it. But it it definitely was a double-edged sword. There were some strong positives there. I wouldn't lean on it for application stuff. I would be intrigued by it for like a suite of, say, like factory bot and factory bot rails. I could see those being in a monorepo. And that sort of thing makes sense to me. But I'm not convinced of the application code version. I'm curious now what the pull request view looks like. So if I'm in a monorepo and I issue a PR and then I go, look, am I going to see all the PRs across all the teams or is it still scoped to just a product or one particular app inside of that directory? I'll be honest at this organization, they had sort of their own proprietary code review going on. So it was a different thing. You were able to, we were scoped down to the thing that we were working on, but that was because a lot of tooling and infrastructure had been built on top of it because this is not necessarily a core workflow. Like, you know, I think Google does this. I think Facebook does this. But I think both of them have had to, like, reinvent version control to do it. Facebook, I think, uses Mercurial, but they've added patches and they've updated it so it can handle the billions of lines of source code that they have. And I'm not sure what Google's on, but it's something entirely different. And so I don't know that Git or GitHub will... You can probably make it work, but it's going to be weird. And you're probably moving yourself into something else for this. Okay. I was just curious because I had the sudden moment of panic of like going to that view and seeing like 100 PRs mm. and that would stress me out incredibly to, to see all of that. So so it sounds like you've worked in a monorepo, you've had some positive experiences for it, but your reaction is that you still wouldn't reach for that unless it's for something smaller. Like you said, factory bot, factory bot rails, where they tie in together nicely. But if you had two distinct products or three, you would... Against might be a strong word, but you would not want to have them as a monorepo. I would probably be against it, yeah. Okay. But the other thing about like organizing a few different open source projects that are very strongly related, I'm intrigued by that. Particularly, there's a tool called Lerna that seems to be used a lot in the JavaScript world. I think Apollo is using that to orchestrate across the different packages and do some, some nice things. So I'm intrigued by that. I haven't actually done it, but it seems to be used to good effect there. If I were adding a team and they were starting to talk about this, I'd be like, ah, I don't know. Please... Let's not for now. Maybe next week, but not this week. Um, but I mean, I'd be open to the conversation because there are benefits, certainly. Yeah, I really hope I work on a mono repo now. I'm just always intrigued when you've had experience in something I haven't done yet, and I want to see if my opinions align with yours at the end of the engagement. Oh, it's all the better when they don't, and then we get to have a radio fight. A radio fight. <laughs> a friendly radio fight. But, friendly. Uh, that is more fun. Cool. Uh, well, thank you, Johnny, for sending in that question. On that note, I think it's time for us to wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. 
If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show, and it lets us know that you're listening and that it's worth us uh, continuing to show up each week. To make it as easy as possible, we've included a link in the show notes that will take you straight into the Bike Shed listing in iTunes on your computer or phone, and from there you can add your rating or review in less than a minute. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed on Twitter, or I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.